Alabama A&M game, and uh, I uh, sat next to Gene and Ruth Ann Stallings, and I know a lot of you know them, and, uh, and uh, I thought you'd be interested in a report. Uh, Coach Stallings is seemingly doing well. Um, a little balance issues from time to time, but he really seems to be doing well, and I know you'll be happy to hear that. He told me yesterday that um, I knew he'd had some real severe problems, but I did not know that the doctors had told him at one point that he had about, to quote him now, he said a 1% chance to live. And so he came through all of that and is, and is doing uh, quite well, and I know that you would uh, be happy to hear that about them. Those of you who are uh, with us today visiting, we are studying. We're doing something that I've never done quite like this. We're looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, somewhat of a harmony and uh, chronological following of his life from his uh, early, early, early life until through his time that he saw the Lord on the road to Damascus, became an apostle, and throughout his ministry all the way until his death. And we're ready today to begin to look at the first missionary journey. Let's do a little bit of uh, remembering now what we've seen so far. Paul, it is believed, was born, Saul was born about the same time uh, the Lord was born. Somewhere between 0 and 5 A.D., probably. He's believed to have uh, uh, been, his conversion was, and remember all of these dates now, I've, I've probably repeated myself here a number of times, but I looked at, I don't know how many different chronological charts, so you can kind of take your pick as I did, but none of them differ too awfully much, and so um, most people think that his conversion occurred about 36 or 37 A.D. He remained in Damascus, Arabia, that, er, that area for three years, converted uh, there in Damascus, went away into Arabia, came back, and three years after his conversion, he uh, came to Jerusalem. The first time for him to visit Jerusalem following his conversion. And then after he was not received there, on, only 15 days there, we learned from the book of Galatians. Uh, he, he, he had gone there with the intent of visiting with Peter. Uh, the brethren didn't want to accept him. They were afraid of him. And Barnabas, you remember, took him and vouched for him. And But still... Um, the Hellenistic Jews there primarily uh, began to uh, trump up all kinds of charges, and the Lord told him in a vision, you need to leave. And so he left and went back to his hometown of Tarsus. In the meantime, the gospel, you know, in chapter 8 of Acts, we read about how the disciples were scattered abroad after the persecution of Stephen, went everywhere preaching the word. Some of those went up to Antioch of Syria and began preaching. And um, when news of this came to the ears of the elders there in Jerusalem, they sent Barnabas up there. And we talked a little bit last week about how suited he was for that task. Barnabas, you know, given that name by the apostles, means son of consolation or son of exhortation. 
And so he was a good choice to send to that young, that church full of young Christians to encourage them and to console them and to uh, work with them. But he soon found it was a big job and he needed help and he longed uh, apparently for the companionship of this former persecutor of the church. So he personally goes to Tarsus and gets Saul, brings him back to Antioch of Syria, and for a whole year they labor together there. And uh, in the uh, uh, latter verses, uh, before we actually get to the talking about the first missionary journey, I want to... Uh, Okay, well, let's go ahead and look at the uh, uh, look at the map while we've got this, and then we can close all that out. Okay, on this first missionary journey, okay, they are in Antioch of Syria, right here, and they um, they are, you know, asked to to uh, the Holy Spirit appears to them or, and. Uh, asked them to separate Paul and Barnabas for the work they'd been chosen to do. So they go from Antioch about 12 miles down to Seleucia, right here on the seacoast, which was the, the seaport for Antioch. Kind of like if you're familiar with South Alabama, Mobile would be the seaport for, for uh, Spanish Fort uh, and for those towns nearby, you know. So about 10 or 12 miles away, Seleucia, they go to Seleucia and sail away to Cyprus. Cyprus is about 80 miles uh, southwest of, uh, of Seleucia. Uh, Barnabas, of course, would be familiar with Cyprus, would he not? You remember Acts chapter 4 uh, when uh, the disciples were multiplying in Jerusalem and many had properties, sold them and so forth, and and, and took the proceeds and gave it to people who were in need. Barnabas, we're told, in Acts chapter 4, owned land on the island of Cyprus, and he sold it and gave proceeds to, the, to help the needy saints. So he would be familiar with this. They uh, sailed to Cyprus, land at Salamis, and eventually worked their way through the island uh, to the... Uh, Obviously, Salamis would be on the eastern coast, and they worked their way through to Paphos on the southwestern uh, um, edge of Cyprus. And from there, they sail away to the mainland, and they come to a place called Perga of Pamphylia. Perga was actually located about six or seven miles up a little river, uh, the river called Cestius. Uh, and so they would, they arrived, uh, sailed away, and I guess sailed up into this river. And uh, about six or seven miles uh, up from the mouth of the river, Perga was located. And they disembarked there, and nothing is said about them preaching any uh, in Perga uh, uh, at this point. Now, when they returned, uh, it is said that they did uh, preach the word there, and we'll talk about that when we get there. But from Perga, they then went to went up to uh, where am I? 
to Antioch of Pisidia. Not Antioch of Syria, but Antioch of Pisidia. And uh, uh, Paul went into the synagogue. We'll talk about this more in detail, but he spoke, and we're going to look, we're going to take enough time to read his message there because I think it, I think it probably gives us an idea of, of what he preached probably everywhere that he went. You know, it varied some depending upon the need, but it, gave, it gives us a good idea of what he would say. But in Antioch of Pisidia, it received very well to begin with, but then he, the Jews uh, worked up trouble against him, and he left there and went to Iconium. And then from Iconium... He went into um, Lycaonia to the towns of Lystra, right here, Iconium here, my hand shaky, Lystra here, and Derby here. And, uh, and then in, he turned around and retraced his uh, steps uh, back through Lystra, back through Iconium, uh, Antioch of uh, Pisidia, back down to Perga, and uh, I'll go ahead and mention this. It does say on the return trip that he spoke there, but it must not have been a lot of interest because it doesn't give any other details plus the fact that he soon left Perga and went down to a place called Italia there to catch the... So reading between the lines, you kind of get the idea that for some reason, he didn't. Nothing is said about his preaching on his first uh, uh, entrance into Perga, which some reason for that. Uh oh. Oh, my thing went dead. I'm sorry. Uh, all right, have to touch that thing every so often. Um, so for some reason, they didn't preach, or at least no record of his preaching when they first arrived in Perga. When he came back, it says that they preached, but no details whatsoever are given. And the fact that he soon left and went to Italia would indicate to me that uh, they decided, uh, rather than to wait around in Derby where nothing was happening, they would go to Italia and, and catch a, a vessel, and perhaps they would have better, better luck there. And that's reading between the lines, but I think there's some validity perhaps to it. But anyway, then they sailed away from uh, Italia back to Antioch to report on the, um, to report. Getting back to our chronology, so if Paul was converted in 36 or 37, spent three years in Damascus and Arabia, uh, then uh, he came to Jerusalem for the first time after his uh, conversion, what would that have been in 39 or 40. Uh, and then he went away to Tarsus, and it was in 44, in chapter 11 of Acts, we read about Barnabas and Saul. You know, Agabus, uh, came, the prophet, came up there and predicted a famine, and so the brethren in Antioch of Syria collected funds, and they sent them by Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, down to Jerusalem, and we know because it said that occurred during the Caesar uh, Claudius reign, and so that was in about 44 A.D. 
And so they went there, carried that relief, and then came back to Antioch. And then, So this first missionary journey probably occurred 45 to 48 or 49 uh, uh, B.C. And that all fits because the Jerusalem conference that you read about in Acts 15 occurred between the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey, and the date for that is about 50 A.D., and that all kind of sinks, okay? So that kind of gives you a little bit of, uh, of, um, of the chronology of that. Okay, let me... Uh, Tell me how I turn that mirror off. There we go. Okay, you can, Chuck, if you want to turn that off, you can or whatever. All right. I did want to, David Short reminded me after the, uh, uh, of, of a very important point after our class other last Sunday, so I wanted to take just a minute in the 13th chapter, verse 1, we, we commented about this briefly last week, but now if you want to open your Bible, we're going to be in chapters 13 and 14 of Acts. In 13, verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, prophets and teachers, we talked a little bit about that. These are, these are just uh, uh, ministries that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4. They're not exactly the same, but there is some overlapping. For example, prophets would certainly be teachers as well as prophets. And, uh, but prophets and teachers. And then it names Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manon, who it says was a lifelong friend of uh, Herod the Tetrarch. Uh, the King James Version, I believe, and the American Standard Version says, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, the word that is translated there, and we've talked about this before, how precise the, the Greek language is, uh, much more so than ours, and oftentimes it takes several words to translate one single word, and so the word that is translated there by these various phrases that was brought up with or was the uh, foster uh, son of and wh whatever phrases you is from a, good, uh, a Greek word which literally means to, to be fed and nourished along with. And so the idea is that this man that is mentioned here was in some way connected with a royal family, and he was uh, uh, brought up, raised with Herod. Now, this isn't Herod Agrippa. This is Herod the Tetrarch that's mentioned in Luke chapter 3. You remember the husband of Herodias who had John the Baptist put to death. And so uh, he, was, he was raised with him, and the idea is that they were probably close to the same age. Some even speculate that his mother had been uh, the nurse to uh, Herod Antipas when he was a child. But in some way there was a connection and he, he was brought up. The whole point that David wanted me to point out, and that's a very good point, is this. 
He was a man of rank. He was a man of education. And his conversion shows that the gospel was not confined solely to those who were poor uh, and to those who were un uneducated. It was reaching uh, uh, people of wealth and people of education as well. Not as many, uh, but they, they, there were those who were responding to that. And also you'll notice that Barnabas' name is mentioned first and Saul's name is, uh, is, mentioned, uh, is mentioned last. One other thing we'll mention about this is the fact that this uh, third verse, or second and third verses, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands upon them and sent them off. The, the design, the purpose of this fasting and praying and laying their hands upon Barnabas and Saul has been discussed and variously interpreted as you can, as you can imagine. Some can... Uh, some think that at this point, Barnabas and Saul were given miraculous powers, powers to perform miracles. The only reason they say this, uh, the only justification for saying that is, in their minds, that there's no record of either uh, uh, Saul or Barnabas having performed miracles prior to this time, whereas after this time, uh, it, there, there is record, of course. But that's not, that within itself is, is not sufficient. And in fact, we, they, I'm, we can be sure, I think, in my mind, I'm sure that Saul, at least, had indeed performed miracles prior to this time. Why? How do I, why do I say that? Well, remember, when we put together, and I showed you a kind of a, a collage of, Acts chapters 9, 22, and 26, and also uh, Galatians chapter 2, all relating to the conversion of Saul, and we read it, all those things. It is made clear that, that Jesus' intent in appearing to Saul on the road to Damascus was what? For what purpose? He said, I appoint you a work. It was to send Paul, in fact in chapter 22 um, and I forget the verse specifically, he said I send you afar to the Gentiles. He, he was a, he, he wanted he, he appeared to Saul so that he qualified to be an apostle meaning he had to see the Lord after his resurrection, but he wanted to make him an apostle and, uh, and he and he went on into Damascus. He couldn't be made an apostle until after he'd become a Christian. And so he, so the apostles on Acts 2 had been baptized at the hands of John the Baptist. And they were fit subjects for the kingdom. And they just fitted in to the kingdom without the sound of a hammer, if you go back to that story in the Old Testament. But uh, when, uh, when they just simply believed on Jesus and they were assembled there at Pentecost and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, you know, after their immersion, after their 
uh, immersion for the forgiveness of sin. So Saul couldn't be an apostle until after he had been initiated into the kingdom. So Ananias baptized him, and then he received the Holy Spirit. And from far as I know and concern, he, he became what the Lord intended for him to come then. He began immediately to speak there in, in Jerusalem, did he not? Entered into the synagogues and talked to the people about how that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Old Testament, went away to Arabia, came back, did the same thing again, been doing that ever since. And uh, one of the marks of an apostle was their ability to perform miracles. And you remember what Saul uh, said about himself in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians? He said, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. So, so uh, Paul recognized and, and even stated the fact that, that one of the proofs that one was an apostle, and by the way, in, in that, those letters, you're familiar, of course, with the fact that some were questioning whether or not he was truly an apostle. And he was showing that he was. And so Paul recognizes that that was the mark of a true apostle. And so I have no reason to believe that he hadn't been that from the beginning when God, uh, when Christ appeared to him and then after his conversion he received the Holy Spirit. So then why, why this fasting and praying and laying on of hands? Well, I assume it was simply for the purpose of doing what the Holy Spirit asked them to do. The Holy Spirit said, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul. And so I think the fasting and the praying and the laying on of hands was simply their way of separating Barnabas and Saul for that work. In Acts chapter 6, when you know they appointed the, the, those uh, six men to, to, to minister to the uh, Grecian widows that were being neglected, same thing, fasted, prayed, laid their hands upon a, a way of sending them off, appointing them for the task which uh, was um, given them to do. Okay. Any questions or comments before we get into this journey? Yes. Okay. Absolutely, excellent point. And I think we could learn a lesson from this. Maybe, maybe sometimes we're a little too cavalier in the things that we set out to do. It's not, I'm not suggesting that we're not uh, 
sincere about them, that we don't believe strongly in them. But it, 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 it might be a benefit to the whole church as well as to those we're sending out for a particular work. Maybe there's a, a family that, that we're particularly interested in helping go into an area uh, to preach the gospel where it's not often preached or something. It, there might be, it might be good for us to do something along this line. And, and we sometimes do. Pray and maybe even fasting on an individual basis. And wouldn't even be anything wrong with laying on hands. Anything we might do to call attention to the gravity of the work, to the importance of the work, and, uh, and, 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 it, and it tends to bring everybody into uh, what is being done, involve them in a way. I, this is a di totally different matter, but I've never forgotten, and I've always thought there's a lot of wisdom in this. I remember Gus Nichols on one occasion years ago was discussing uh, the question of disfellowshipping and so forth. And uh, among other things he said, you know, and he, he, he was always very careful to point out that that should be a last resort and every effort should be made. And he went through some of the procedures that they followed there at 6th Avenue where he preached for so many years. And not that he was saying that's the way it had to be done, but he would talk about how the, uh, the, they would first, uh, uh, and the elders would talk about it and they would go out as... It, as one or two elders to visit the persons involved. They'd go two or three times. Then they would call the deacons in and ask if any of them knew them especially and would like to go out and encourage them. And every effort was made to, to draw them in. But when the decision was finally made to disfellowship this person for whatever reason, he said that it would be announced in the, in the congregation and the whole congregation would be asked to stand in, a, in acknowledgement and in a way approval of the action being taken. And uh, so I think sometimes, you know, ways of getting people more personally involved is a good thing. Okay, but be that as it may. Chapter 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them in the synagogues. Remember Jesus had said to his disciples in Acts 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon and then you shall be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, and then where? The uttermost parts of the world. So um, they would, in the beginning, the, the, the gospel was preached first to the chosen people. And then, you know, we've talked about in Acts 10 how Peter opened the door, doors of the kingdom to the Gentile world. But even in his um, missionary work, even though he was specifically the, the apostle to the Gentiles, when he'd go into an area, he would go first into the, into the synagogue and for a number of reasons. And, uh, but for one reason, it was a way to uh, have an entrance into, into that city. So uh, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had uh, John to assist them. This is John Mark. You remember they picked him up when they went to Jerusalem in chapter 11 to deliver that contribution uh, to the poor saints there, they picked up John Mark and brought him back with them. And so now 
He's with them on this missionary, uh, this missionary journey. And they had John to assist them. Um, when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the... Um, uh, he was the uh, proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Am I, I'm, that's not sounding right to me. Uh, he was with, I'm sorry, <laughs> left out a word. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And Elamus, it was other, his other name, the magician, for that uh, is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Paul, who was also called, uh, rather Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And, beho and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching uh, of the Lord. Um, and so, as we've already said, they, they leave Seleucia, they come to the island of Cyprus, they, they land at Salamis and go through the island. The island of Cyprus is about 130 miles long and about 80 miles, uh, about 80 miles wide. And uh, uh, when they come to... Uh, 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 Paphos, they run into this uh, individual Elamus, who uh, was a magician. Who, uh, uh, and, and you you may recall that in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter eighteen, and other such passages, uh, witchcraft and the such like was forbidden. Uh, I don't think just uh, what we were think about is. Is, uh, things that a magician does in and of itself is wrong but here as was also true in chapter 8 and I think what the writer had in mind in the Old Testament was what was those who practice this in a way as to well at, at um, uh, in Acts chapter 8 Simon Magnus you know uh, he had the people there believing that he was something great something that he was not. And that seems to be true here as well. This, this man was, was using this, his ability to, to do these tricks and this magic and so forth to, to, to and it even says of him that he's a false prophet. So it's, it's in this sense that witchcraft is, is, is wrong. Now, uh, Sam, Sam not with us today? Sam, you know, is a, is a great magician. And uh, we all have fun and enjoy it. I've always been captivated by uh, magicians, and especially those who are really good. But, but they don't make themselves out as being most of the really good magicians I've ever even 
heard or, or seen performed, they will tell you up front and again at the beginning, this is, I, I'm just doing tricks. It, it's not like it appears. You could do this as well as I could if you practice it, perhaps. That's not necessarily true. You have to have a certain ability. But, but my point is they're not trying to make themselves out to be something they're not. They're not trying to hold sway over people like these two were. Now this man uh, probably didn't like <clears throat> Saul and Barnabas and Saul coming in for a couple of reasons. First of all, he was a Jew after all. And so he probably had a lot of the same Jewish, you know, prejudices that most Jews had. But maybe even more than that, he didn't want to lose his standing with his proconsul. He kind of had, uh, had him buffaloed, <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, and uh, he didn't want to lose, lose that, that position. Um, that was his motivation. In the case of Simon Magnus in chapter 8, you know, Peter condemned him because he wanted to buy the power of God with money and he wanted to use it for what, for what purpose? Obviously, he wanted to use it uh, the way he had been uh, having power over people in the, pa in the past. He probably thought, well, my goodness, if I can do this real thing, I really can. He wasn't so much thinking about salvation of people's souls. So anyway, they ran into this person and, and, and saw... Um, uh, causes him to be blinded. Now here I want you to notice this phrase. It says, and Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then it goes on to talk about how he blinded this man. Until this point, it had been Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas and Saul. From this point on, it's going to be not in every incident. incident. We'll see an incident later on over in uh, Lystra. But uh, most of the time, the great majority of the time from here on out, it's Saul and Barnabas. Saul kind of takes the preeminence, not in a, an ugly way, just becomes more of a spokesman and, 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 uh, and the, the leader, as I guess you might say, of these missionary uh, efforts. All kinds of conjecture about that. Um, some thinks it has to do with the fact that this may, that it that it happened here at the conversion of this Sergius Paulus, and that that's a Latin word for Paul, and 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 they had a similar name, and that that somehow uh, tripped the switch, you know, and he from then on. It is the case that he from now on it, uh, becomes Paul, and it becomes Paul and Barnabas rather than Barnabas and Paul. But I think this, and I, you remember I said this when we were beginning, it's likely, and I personally have the opinion, for whatever it's worth, that he was given both of those names as a youth. That was often true of Jewish boys. That's well established in the scripture. And especially being brought up in Tarsus, a Greek city, and so he, among the Jews, was Saul, among the Greeks, you know, he was. And now that he is beginning this work in foreign countries, largely among Greek-speaking people, or in their towns and provinces, that's like, he begins to use this, this, this name. That, to me, just, just makes sense. And so it becomes... Paul 
and Barnabas uh, from, uh, from here on out. Something that I, I think is kind of interesting. I don't know if you ever noticed or not, but there's, there are some interesting parallels between the ministries of Paul and Peter. And we'll begin to see some of those. For example, uh, you remember Peter healing the man who was lame from birth at the temple gate. And uh, when we, just a little bit further along, when Paul gets to Lystra, you're going to read about Paul uh, healing a man who had been impotent in his feet uh, for, for years and years. Peter, you remember, was imprisoned and at midnight was miraculously delivered from Herod's prison. And you'll remember, of course, that Paul and Barnabas were imprisoned as well in Philippi and were released. Um, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead, and uh, Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Peter condemned Simon Magnus that we talked about a moment ago in Acts chapter 8, and uh, who sought those spiritual powers for gain, and, uh, and Paul smote Elamus blind on the island of Cyprus. Peter confirmed with the laying on of hands the Samaritans upon their conversion and imparting the Holy Spirit to them. And Paul in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, uh, you remember, baptized those who had been uh, uh, converted to John's baptism and they received the Holy Spirit. So a number of um, parallels, as it were, uh, in their ministries that I just found to be uh, interesting. All right? Uh, any questions along that line? Okay. Now, Paul and his companions set sail. Well, they, we, yeah, okay, from Paphos, uh, Paphos uh, and came to Perga, in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Why did he leave? I have no idea. I have no idea. All I know is, and you know, is that later on another trip, uh, Paul didn't want to take John with him. Now, was that because he, uh, he, uh, he was disappointed in him? And in, in, in what he had done for some reason, maybe he had lost his courage, maybe, uh, or it could have been, um, was it because he had fallen ill and Paul still had, had a concern about his health and whether or not he was yet healthy enough? Could have been. I don't know. I just know that Paul, for some reason, didn't, think it best to take John Mark with him. Barnabas, on the other hand, always kind of spirit, always helping, encouraging, consoling, thought that they ought to take John Mark, and the disagreement between them was so sharp that it resulted in what? They're going their separate ways. I don't think they went mad at each other. In fact, God overruled it for good, because now instead of one group going out, you got two groups going out. 
Barnabas and John and his group and, and uh, Paul and now Silas. But <clears throat> there was a conflict. Who was right? Don't know. In the end, I know this, that Barnabas's staying with John Mark probably was good, a good thing, and may have been a tremendous encouragement to him. And even Paul, later in life, said what? Bring John Mark. He's useful for the ministry. So even Paul, faith was restored. If, if, if he had lost faith or whatever it was that caused him to have questions, that was removed and he was uh, for John Mark. Well, a lot to be said about all this. But we didn't get to that sermon. I tell you what, for next uh, Sunday, read this message that Paul uh, speaks uh, in Antioch of Pisidia uh, in that synagogue. It's rather lengthy, a little bit like the one Stephen uh, spoke in, in Acts chapter 7. But I think it'll give us a feel for the kinds of things that you know, because oftentimes he, the, it's just simply said that he preached the word or he did this, spoke, you know. We don't have a, much insight into what specifically he said. But here, we, we get to see the kinds of things that he said particularly. One other thing I wanted to mention for, to me, this is amazing. In, in these places where he went, you know, he'd always go into the synagogue first. And usually there would be a synagogue. In almost every major city, didn't even have to be major, in the world, you would always find a what? A colony of Jews, and they would have a synagogue. Man, you talk about industrious people. <laughs> they were all over the world. And uh, God used that to help spread the word. Thank you.
Lord, I lift your name on high. Lord, I love to sing your praises. I'm so glad you're in my life. I'm so glad you came to save us. You came from heaven to earth to show the way from the earth to the cross. My death to pay from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. Lord, I lift your name on high. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to University Church. If you're visiting with us electronically, we're delighted to have you. Uh, and if you're visiting with us in our audience this morning, you are our special guest, and we appreciate you being here. You're a blessing and an encouragement to us. If you would, if you're visiting, please fill out one of the green cards on the back of the pew in front of you. And if you're visiting with us, um, raise your hand if you would. We've got a friendship loaf for you. We've got several folks here and some young men who are... Um, handing those out and if you're sitting by somebody you know to be a visitor that is hesitant don't hesitate to point them out um, I've got lots of information this morning for you so um, please bear with me as I go through this we had a call uh, a little earlier from Martha Grubb Mitch Grubb is in Baptist South um, with acute respiratory failure. Please keep Mitch in your prayers. Uh, Martha is waiting on a pulmonologist and a cardiac um, physician, so please keep Mitch in your prayers. Donna Bentley has been admitted to Encompass, who is the former Health South. She was discharged from the hospital. She's still not doing well. Um, Donna Jackson, Doris Farr's niece, has stage four lung cancer and they've requested your prayers. Debbie Reynolds' father is in very serious condition in Kansas. Um, she received a call Friday saying that he may be having a heart attack. It turned out not to be that, but she's requested your prayers uh, as well and um, Debbie is out there with him. There are a lot of updates in your bulletin, so please note those. Um, there's like a lot we'd like to mention, but please uh, be aware of, of lots of things, um, people updates there. We've got some great news today, though. Um, more evidence, if we didn't already know it, that, that prayer works. Um, you can tell I'm trying to find my notes here. It's great to have Pierce Flat back with us. He had very significant shoulder replacement surgery just two weeks ago, and he's here. Um, Kay Newman is here with us, who has, she is recovering, and it's great to see Dorothy Mosby. You didn't think I saw you, did you? Um, Dorothy has been in the hospital. She has been very low. It is great to see you, dear. We're delighted to have you back with us. Lots of people to keep in our prayers. We also are um, delighted today to welcome a new brother in Christ from Wednesday night, um, Brooks Busby. Brooks, if you would stand up and, and wave at everybody, we'd like to welcome you in song, brother. We love you with the love of the Lord. Yes, we love you with the love 
of the Lord. We see in you the glory of our King, and we love you with the love of the Lord. Happenings today, photo updates this morning in room 105. If you've not had your picture made or you don't look like you do in the directory, uh, please come to 105. A youth devotional this afternoon, uh, this after the PM service rather, at the Hunton's home. The college will have their normal Sunday night devotional, and Ed has asked me to remind everyone about the catered dinner in the fellowship hall next Sunday night for all the families of the university youth ministry. Uh, please be there. It's very important. Uh, there's a meeting with the deacons, the elders, and our ministers, so, so please plan to be there next Sunday night. I believe that's everything. Those men who are leading our service today, Ed Redmond is leading our singing this morning. Brother Philip Hardy will lead our main prayer. Randall Bailey will preside at the table. Andres DeTorres will read our scripture, and Todd Brennerman will close us in prayer. And our brother Art Williams will bring the message to us this morning. If you would, let's read together uh, this week's one another focus verse. Um, it's easier to see on this one, so let me turn and look at it. It's cut off on that one. Let's recite it together from 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy God, you are loving and living. You are in control of everything. And we thank you for allowing us to be here this morning to worship and to glorify you. We thank you, Father, for our Christian family here, and we pray that we will serve you and worship this morning in love and that will be according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. morning, number 322, in heavenly love abiding. We'll sing all three verses of this song. 